I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? This is another episode of Art Attack with your host, Lizzie Dastin, art historian, and myself, Justin Bua. Today, we're talking about drugs. <laughs> I mean, artists that used <laughs> drugs, used drugs as a way to be inspired, to self-medicate, to help with the process, to relax. But ultimately, Lizzie and I cannot do this without living it because that would be really, you know, not... Inauthentic. Inauthentic. So we're going to try to, you know, put our money where our mouth is. And I'm going to take a hit right now. I got the best weed in the world. Oh, it's your first hit. It's my first hit. No. (laughs) I'm not going to Clinton bullshit you and say I I never inhaled. I'm not going to lie. I'm taking big ass hits from a beautiful, organic, sticky, icky sativa. Grown by <clears throat> somebody who does biodynamic farming, which is actually really true. This is kind of the best weed I've ever had in my life. So we on the show have talked about high art versus low art. Low being maybe something that's kitsch or something that's more about the space of consumerism and high art being art about drugs. <laughs> Listen. Art, Lizzie's taking it. Hey, take another one. What no, are you doing? that was a big one. No, come on. Don't be. I'm pr- I'm, this is peer pressure. Just take another one. What are you scared? Oh my God. Take a good one, though. I did, it. I did it. I did it. He's the worst. Don't you hear me coughing? Okay, I'm going to hit it again. I'm going to pass it back to you. Okay. By the way, you are witnessing <laughs> getting high on the air. I don't think Lizzie's got quite the. Uh, capability to handle it maybe <laughs> that's true when As, i was she might young, be a little bit of a care bear but i'm not sure what does that mean isn't that some kind of a softy you can't handle your weed that kind of thing yeah you know, that's my, fair that's my daughter calls me a care bear all the time i'm like ow i hurt my hip she's like oh my god what a care bear because you know she does jujitsu and i would come out and i'd be like ow my wrist you know whatever and she would be doing like eight hours of jujitsu as opposed to my one hour and she'd be like dad you're such a care bear and i was like damn that's the worst Yeah, that's not the best. When I was in high school, I coughed really hard, and one of my ribs punctured a lung, so I shouldn't be smoking anything. But you you know, can you actually inhale? Like inhale this time? Yeah, let's talk. Your mom's gonna love me on this show, by the way. She's like, he's such a no. I did it. That's better. Yeah, you got a little better. Who's a Care Bear now? Not you. You're an animal. (laughs) You're a freaking animal. Smoking with a Rasta. Yeah, Woo, I'm high as a motherfucker. Okay, here we go. What are we talking about? Just kidding. So, um, you know, I want to bring up the funniest artist of all, Salvador Dali, the one who you would think would be the druggiest of all drugs. And Salvador Dali is famous for saying, I don't take drugs, I am drugs. And in fact, he was right. He actually didn't. What he would do is he would sleep with a spoon. He would look at shit in the spoon, right? You could see his perspectives all funky and crazy with that kind of like the way it would perspect in, in, a, in a circular, globular way. You know, it was really crazy. And then he would sleep with a spoon and he would, he would fall asleep. He would doze off and the spoon would drop and hit something. He would wake up right away because at that moment he would know to write his dream down. So he would catch that instantaneous moment of just falling asleep and dozing off and dreaming and then he would capture it because he didn't want to sleep too much and miss 
the concepts he had, these visual worlds that he created in the confines of his crazy drug-like imagination, yet he did no drugs at all, or supposedly did no drugs. I find that still so fucking hard to believe. So it's interesting because he definitely created these drug-induced aesthetic landscapes, but I, I buy it that he didn't actually do drugs because at the time of the Surrealists, Freud's psychoanalysis was really popular, and so artists were trying to tap into their unfettered, unconscious mind. Sorry, I'm very distracted by Justin we're, trying, to, we're trying to kill, trying a, mosquito. To kill a mosquito. Dude, and this I, mosquito is fast, <laughs> and I'm Sit high. down, no, no, focus. No, 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 no. <laughs> No. They, it's over there. Me and okay, Manny are going people, crazy. Calm These things down. are aggressive. So I'm just going to turn away and not look at okay, Justin as I talk. Sorry. So I think that he was trying to Damn. unlock this psychosexual mind that was within his dream space. And so that's a really cool anecdote about the spoon. And he's famous for these melting clocks. And people think, oh, Persistence of time. Everybody knows that painting. That's very famous. The persistence of memory. Persistence of memory. And that's the one we talked about. There's this biomorphic weird figure in the foreground that kind of looks like it has the aesthetic characteristics of Dali, but we don't really know what it is. And that's actually a reference to his fear of his own sexual impotence. And it's almost like a flayed, flaccid self-portrait. But the impetus, the genealogy of the clocks, the legend goes that he was at a dinner party and it was really hot out and the camembert cheese started to melt. And so he thought of just the the visual possibility. How high are you to not realize that you're not talking about artists who are doing drugs right now? (laughs) What? <laughs> Listen, we're t- you're going off on this painting, which is drug-like, but let's get back on track with artists that have used drugs to influence cool. their work. Marina Abramovich. Okay. She is there a great example. And in 1974, she okay. did a series of performances called Rhythms. And in one of them, she took drugs for issues that she did not actually experience what kind or of drugs? have. Uh, whatever the drug for catatonia, that's one of them. Okay. And she would film herself and her body's reaction to these drugs. And it's really scary. And this is all about her leitmotif of pushing her body to its maximum. She's really using herself and this vulnerability of her body and on this precipice of safety. She's using that as the fodder for just understanding the the road in which art is now traveling. And so um, her use of drugs is pretty, pretty stunning and it's pretty frightening. So that's not a recreational use of drugs, but I do think watching the videos shows just the, the physical effects of these substances, regardless of whether they're recreational. Yeah. I mean, we look at Van Gogh, Van Gogh, and we could easily see that he was he was on drugs. I mean, the heightened colors. You know, back then and now, people do it all the time, but they were drinking absinthe, which had hallucinogenic qualities to it. Like, if you drank absinthe, it was very... It could be psychoactive. It's and he took barbiturates, too, I think, which must have just double-activated everything. Antipsychotics or so whatever they gave him. Yeah, I mean, he... And, th- and that's why a lot of people say that his color's vibrating or you see such saturated out-of-the-tube colors as opposed to colors that have been pre-mixed and are a little toned down. 
but I think that Van Gogh was definitely influenced by drugs. And I think that he actually wrote Theo uh, later in life that he thinks that his drug use actually made his paintings worse. So, you know, a lot of people feel like they're kind of dependent on drugs to be inspired. I noticed that, like with colleagues of mine uh, who are artists, I think a lot of people think that, oh, drugs is going to make me better, you know, or when I'm high, I do something great. But I think the thing is, is that for me, at least smoking weed, which I've painted on a lot in my life, just makes you a little bit more proactive. You know, it doesn't, and maybe inspired initially, but like Picasso said, how do you know you're inspired unless you have a pen in your hand and you're already working or inspiration exists, but it has to find you working. Let's be real. Like, you know, that marijuana just kind of takes that off and makes you think you're great for the moment, which is inspiring unto itself, you know? And so you can get there in other ways and other channels, but I think it's a, but I think it's a good way uh, to interact with a plant spirit to open you up to possibilities and to start the process of creation because it makes you feel inspired. And it was such a wonderful tool for Van Gogh, and he may not have seen that, but I think that also was probably because of the deforming psychological state that he was in and also because of where art was at the time, specifically with regards to color. So his predecessors would be the Impressionists, and Impressionism is all about these beautiful pastel colors. And with Van Gogh and people within the post-Impressionist era, they activated these really saturated pigments. And so no longer are they just picturesque, but suddenly they're sublime. Suddenly we have that duality between being in awe of something and also being a little bit afraid. And Van Gogh was not the only artist at the time who explored absinthe, etc., but also Henri Toulouse-Lautrec. Oh, too much of it. Too yeah, much of it. He died he, of alcoholism. Yep. Yeah, he got his liver shriveled. I mean, he was already he was already a dwarf and uh he, you know, he um he killed himself with alcohol poisoning. In fact, if you see the photographs of Toulouse-Lautrec early, later in life, uh, you know, his his nose becomes bulbous, much like Rembrandt was an alcoholic as well and used alcohol as a tool to work. Uh, you know, so if you see Toulouse-Lautrec, you could see that he's he's dying, and you can see it's alcohol. There's a redness in his nose. There's a swelling in his face. There's a puffiness under his eyes. Uh, the cartilage in his nose is swelling up, and then he's got bumps everywhere, those red alcoholic bumps. Uh, so you see that later, and absinthe is very strong. I know people that mess with that, and, and it's you know it has psychoactive properties, but you know at the end of the day... Uh, it's going to kill your liver and your liver's probably your most important organ beside, you know, your brain, your liver, but without your liver, you're dead. And so it dries your liver up. It shrivels you out. It rots you from the inside. And it's, it is psychoactive. You know, marijuana doesn't mess with your liver and it's psychoactive too. So get off absinthe guys. This was was one big uh, public. uh, Yeah. This is a nice little PSA, but the work itself, you can kind of see those creative reverberations of the hallucinogenic experience on absinthe because these colors, they just look like they're mm. all under the glow of some artificial, uh, the artificiality of the light with inside. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> with inside the Moulin Rouge. I'm never going to smoke again. <laughs> yes, you are. Listen, I think what you're saying is actually brilliant. You're yeah. onto something here. Because what Toulouse-Lautrec did with his lighting, which is, I never thought about that. So that's cool. Like, I never thought about the fact that he was perhaps influenced by drugs. And that's why his, 
the the faces look like they're painted white and there's light like there's almost like a spotlight shooting right up to the face right so it's underlit too which gives that eerie quality Degas used it a lot with the ballet paintings the opera paintings but Toulouse uses it quite a lot you know where he's got that white makeup and that green and the red the green the red the white are beautiful combinations with a restricted palette and that's what Toulouse Trek does so beautifully but I never thought about perhaps he did that because he was high as a motherfucker <laughs> and he saw shit that we might not be able to see with our normal senses yeah what does drugs do drugs heighten your senses Senses. Oftentimes, also, depending on the drug, dulls your senses. So, you know, but I think with Toulouse, you definitely see a heightened sensibility of color and 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 play on those, particularly the greens, the whites, the oranges, and the blacks, and just it becomes really crazy. And of course, the subject matter is crazy anyway. Oh, and you know is. the people, Toulouse Trek was hanging out at brothels, and so for sure he was everybody was getting high on something. Right? That's just what they did. Absolutely. And also, not just the use of the colors, but their pairings emphasize the drama, the performance, and almost the anxiety, too, of the scene. So he'll put a green right next to a red. And so optically, that's just going to make our retinas go a little bit crazy. And so I think he was really smart in his invocation of these color theories that were coming out at around 1890 when Toulouse uh, Litzclack was working. So we should also talk about artists who incorporate drugs as the theme of their work. Maybe they're not users, but they at least are illustrators. And I can talk about one. And he's a contemporary artist, Daniel Allen Cohen. And he does a lot of work that addresses our worship, our fascination with drugs. And I think his most successful project is called The Periodic Table of Drugs. And it parodies the aesthetic of the periodic table of elements. And the periodic table, probably the most important scientific thing that kids are forced to learn because only using these elements can life exist. And so there's just nothing more fundamental than that. But we see this as just something that we have to memorize because we're told to. It's not fun. It's totally boring. And Cohen, he uses this aesthetic, but he makes it seductive by taking the element away and putting in a drug. So he'll have marijuana and mushrooms and cocaine and whatever drug you can think of, he includes in this periodic table. And then he changes the language. And so he says, you know, marijuana will make you say words that you don't mean or whatever it is. Is he using drugs? Does that matter? I'm, I'm, yes, it does. I'm, I'm curious. See, I think that he is more making a commentary on drug use and our information as to whether he used it would give allegiance to one side of the debate over another. So I don't think that he wants his viewers to necessarily know he's creating That's this provocative cool, do question. You know? Do I know? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So he does drugs. <laughs> I didn't say that. But but what kind? You know what I mean? I right, right. Not all the drugs. Sure, of course. But, you know, a couple of them. I think you would have to because you're talking about it and you want to be the one who could actually experience it. So you're coming from a place of knowledge and, and understanding. Sure. And it's also not pedantic. He's not necessarily looking down at drug culture. Sure. He's not diminishing its 
positive medicinal effects on people, mm. some drugs, but he is presenting a question and each viewer is going to receive that information and process it differently. And so I think the way that I experience it is just our shifting of values from this scholastic, it's all about pedagogy and science. And now we hero worship, not that kind of information that makes us live, but we, we love, we privilege these drugs. Yeah, you know, a, another artist who was clearly in the drug scene was Basquiat. You know, Basquiat was a heroin user, uh, you know, probably an incredible weed smoker, but then, as you know, weed's a gateway drug. Just kidding. And uh, What? Sorry, that was never a delayed heard reaction. You never used to hear Loveline with Dr. Drew and, like, Adam Carolla. We had very different childhoods. This was in L.A. This no. Was in, <laughs> that, you remember that, right, Manny? Thank you so much. So he would always say that marijuana was a gateway drug. I just find that hilarious. Now you could bring an ounce of weed to LAX to travel with it. That's new. Really? Yes. Oh, my God. So now you could just travel with weed everywhere. So anyway... From my opinion, it's a medicine. But Basquiat was using another medicine, which is obviously heroin from Poppy. So yes, it is natural, but he was using heroin. Um, whether it influenced his work or not, I have no idea. But whether it was kind of the rock and roll thing to do with that rock and roll, Andy Warhol, Eli, you know, bro, um, just that whole rock and roll world, you know, the Mick Jaggers and the Keith Richards and all those guys in the world. I mean, everybody's doing drugs. And at that time... You know, you got Warhol and Basquiat, and they're rock stars of the art world. So why wouldn't they use heroin? That's what their vibe was. We're fucking just rock stars, and they were rocking it. Rock stars comes from just rocking it, and they were rocking it, rocking it. Yes, they were rocking it all day long. So, you know, probably all the fame and fortune he 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 had to just kind of soothe himself. And you know, heroin's heroin's like the drug you don't want to use because it's the drug that's probably so good you're like, I need to feel like that all the time, and it's dangerous. Um, I've known artists who are definitely shooting and snorting. Um, I, I'm I'm not going to say that, you know, it makes your work better or, or not, you know. But, um, but I think there are certain drugs, certain psychedelics that definitely open your mind. You look at Alex Gray's work, you can definitely see that there's psychedelics in the work. You know, if you could feel it, I feel the same thing with Mirror One, the street artist, graph writer slash painter, Mirror One, I think that, that psychedelics definitely influence his work. Uh, Alex Gray, for sure. Uh, Rick Griffin, for sure. The early poster artist for The Grateful Dead, Stanley Mouse, the other artist for The Grateful Dead, for sure. There are definitely a lot of psychedelics that open your mind. You know, quite honestly, I, from what I understand from the early illustrators, a lot of those guys did psychedelics, and certainly Dean Cornwell smoked hash. That's for sure. All those guys who went overseas, they were smoking hash. So a lot of artists were definitely uh, doing drugs, smoking weed. And you look at a Monet, you think he must have been high, but he was probably just drunk on wine. But you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Everyone has their vice. It's interesting. Um, and art so often is escapism for an artist. And I think that people see drugs as escapism too. And so it makes sense that those two practices would be aligned. Yeah, and you know, there's the crazy stories about drugs, the really wacky ones that you're like, don't know if it's good. Art, art historically conspiratorial or if it's fact. Like what? Like the the one you hear about uh, Bruegel and Hieronymus Bosch. So during that era, there was a there was a fungus that would go on rye in places. It was called ergot, E R G O T, 
and people you have you heard about this uh-huh. yeah so the ergot was supposedly in food and and or, or, or around a lot of people say it was the winds the northern winds you've heard the ergot blowing in the northern winds and what it would do it would it would do several things it would kill you uh, it was a fungus that would kill you it would burn your body up which they called saint anthony's fire um, it would burn you where you felt like you were tortured and dying literally in hell. So if you look at like Bosch's work, he's got fire, fire, fire everywhere referencing St. Anthony's fire representing the, er, the air god. But the other thing that it would do that people are saying that it had an influence on is it would make you hallucinate. And the hallucination was where they think that air got as a hallucinatory fungus, quote unquote, drug, but yet killer poison was an influence on the Dutch painters like Bruegel and Hieronymus Bosch. And certainly you could see that Hieronymus Bosch was definitely on some shit when he painted the Garden of Earthly Delights. Which, oddly and disturbingly, is my stepfather's favorite painting. So Makes sense. It's a great painting. It's, <laughs> it is. You know, it's, really it's, it's epic. It's epic. <laughs> That's the thing about that is so much symbolism, so many like... So many figures, so much going on, so yeah, much chaos. It's, so it's, many little vignettes, which I think maximize its intrigue because there's not a central narrative. So the Garden of Earthly Delights, it's kind of an altarpiece. So it's in three separate panels that are all put together. Yeah, exactly. It's a triptych. And so that's interesting in and of itself because it's positioning this hell, this purgatory in a religious space that is often just reserved for the annunciation scene or Mm -hmm. the crucifixion. And Mm so I think that was its first little subversion, um, just echoing this, this triptych format, but there are tons of little things like birds eating figures or a figure masturbating with an enlarged strawberry. That's my favorite part. And (laughs) Do you remember that part? It's just so odd. I, there's, you know, he's oh, he's upside so down. Wild. You can't see the figure's head. You just see a strawberry, and you should look it up. It's it, really it's amazing. one of those paintings that's on every college kid's wall because every college kid's <laughs> like, "Whoa, this is like, this is like, every single debaucherous act is being performed, and it's comical, and it's ridiculous, and it's insane, and it's scary." And it was meant to incite fear. So he wasn't doing this to mock the church. He was a very devout man, and he was doing this as a warning against being conducting yourself in any kind of way in life that would lead you to this purgatory or this hell in death. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then you got to wonder, like, did he create that on drugs? Did he not create that on drugs? I mean, it's, just, it's so druggy. But then you look at Dali, and you think of all of Dali's crazy druggy work, and, and people say... He, he never did drugs. I mean, but, you know, some people are high naturally. Besides, you know, like when my mom was pregnant, she was smoking weed and she did psychedelics early on. And so did that break the blood barrier wall and I'm a product of psychedelia? You know, am I an embryotic psychedelic <laughs> creature that came out of the womb prone to enjoying weed? Perhaps. But I sure, I surely don't, you know, want to delve into hard drugs ever. That's just not my thing. Um, that being said, you know, a lot of artists did delve into hard drugs. Jackson Pollock was a devout alcoholic. He was a raging alcoholic and a depressive. And I think a lot of artists were. And Rothko. Rothko. And that, talk about depressive. Rothko ended up dying by suicide right as he was 
hanging the the famous Rothko Chapel or the works that were there, a collaboration with architect Philip Glass. And you can tell just the psychological state he was in looking at those works because he did his signature multi-form. So these two rectangles, often it's two, sometimes he would play with more, and they're floating against a solitary ground. And typically his color palette although maybe saturated, still it's colors. And in the Rothko Chapel, there are all these shades of black and gray, and you just feel the weight that must have psychologically been just affecting him like an albatross. Yeah. I mean, you look at Pollock too, you know, car crash. That there's a certain, who knows? You know what I mean? There's just a lot of depressing things. And I guess that like, is it because they're trying to inspire, or heal, or uplift, or be more creative with the alcohol? Or is it just, you know, that they're artists and they're a part of them that are very depressed and very lonely and very sad and they're creating in their studio alone, sad. You know what I mean? And and it's and it's and it's killing that pain. And and that's why they're artists. See what I'm saying? It's the cart before the horse, the horse before the cart. I don't think that. I think that artists are probably disproportionately more drug-inspired, but it's probably because creative people have more access to the right hemisphere of their brain and they're open to more possibilities. They're not as linear, and they're, they're, they're a little bit more critical and out of the box. In general, I'm right. obviously completely you know, generalizing here, but in general, artists are designed that way. And their erratic behavior is often running concurrent to their creativity. And I wanted to end our conversation on high art, talking about one of the most celebratory artists I know, who is just a delightful human being, a very creative, ingenious guy. And he's a contemporary street artist. He goes by Balloonski. And drugs are really central to his life and therefore his practice. Mm. And what he does... He will use actual balloons as his material, which I think just emphasizes the ephemerality of street art in a really sophisticated and cool way. And he creates these fun characters, often Pac-Man figures or these little pixelated cartoons from our youth. And when you put them up, the experience of rounding a corner becomes something to celebrate because when do we see balloons? <laughs> when we're at parties, right? Mm. And so I just think that it's such a joyful way of living. And definitely this mindset and this attitude is encouraged by the drugs. weed that he smokes and, yeah, by the drugs. But what uh, what other things besides weed? Just weed? Uh, no, he, he dabbles in other things, dabbles but in other. weed but I think is But he doesn't like the, to talk about it. I don't think he doesn't. I confuse myself with the double negative. I think he's fine talking about it. I don't think it. he does it. I do think he does, <laughs> I, I do think he does and I does do think not he does. does. <laughs> Who are we? We're really high. And that's <sighs> what... But by the way, as an artist myself, I started my career smoking a lot of weed. Uh, I took about 17 years where I didn't smoke at all. I was actually scared straight because I got so high one time that... I kept getting high and having bad experiences because it kind of was like psychoactive. This is the beginning of chronic being introduced to LA. Before that, I was smoking like Oaxaca Brown. What's chronic? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's like it was like really strong green, like weed, like hybridized weed that was like grown in a lab, and they would take like the best flower, the best flower, the best flower, best flower, and all of a sudden you had some princess ash killer monster weed, and you get high out your mind. But before that. <laughs> 
Yeah, it was chronic and Kush. But we were like brown smoking Oaxaca, New York kids who were like not getting the greeny greeny. Sometimes we got the sticky icky. Sometimes we got like, you know, different ones like the Hawaiian. You know what I mean? We're like, yo, you got Hawaiian, son? That's ridiculous, man. And we would get high. But the level of <laughs> weed is different now. It's just way stronger. Um, so, but I, I painted Piano Man, my early Piano Man painting, high out of my mind. And I remember painting the Piano Man in the yellow jacket, I think in six hours straight. And it was a four foot by four foot painting. And I was like, whoa, I'm going to smoke weed the rest of my life. This is incredible. But I had started smoking when I was 11. That's a long story. Um, and I think I got high for the first time with my mom when I was 11 or 12. Um, that's another story. So, uh, yeah, I then took a really long hiatus and started smoking weed again. And uh, now I feel like I'm, it's not like then where I was just a wake and baker, smoke and toke, wake and bake 24-7, wake up in the morning, bong hit, go to bed, bong hit, whatever. Now I'd use it recreationally. And I think there's a there's a important lesson to what the Indians say, the Indians of the Plains. And they say that smoke a cool pipe. Well, what does that mean? That means don't overindulge. Do it ritualistically. Don't do it habitually. Do it spiritually. Don't do it regularly. So I think that's a good lesson. Smoke a cool pipe, paint, be inspired by it, but don't let it be a crutch. Marijuana is an inspirational spirit plant. Peace. <laughs>